0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Stories Between Christianity and Islam, Saints, Memory, and Cultural Exchange in Late Antiquity and Beyond, published by University of California Press in 2022, Rehan Durmaz uses stories of saints to demonstrate and analyze the mutually constitutive relationship between Christianity and Islam in the Middle Ages. Rehan Durmaz is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a delight to be here.
0: So to get started, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
1: Of course. Um, So. My research mostly focuses on the medieval Middle East, um, and that's roughly from the 5th to the 12th century. And geographically, we're looking at the Eastern Mediterranean, North Africa, um, until the Iranian plateau um, on the east, and um, it goes as far as um, um, Yemen and South um, Arabia. So that is the geography that I'm looking at in my research. I am especially interested in Christianity in the Middle East. Um, Christian-Muslim relations, and more theoretical questions regarding religion. For example, um, the making of religious communities, religious identity, formation of religious practice. So I'm interested in those theoretical questions as well in my research. So this is perhaps expected um, given that I am from Turkey um, and in many ways I'm shaped by the legacies of um, that history, the history of the Middle East. But I was also privileged to follow my curiosities. Um, After college, for example, I wanted to do something related to uh, the cultural heritage of religious minorities in Turkey. I started graduate school with that grand aspiration. Then um I took a field a field trip to Southeast Turkey, which is the homeland of Syriac Christianity, um and I immediately knew uh, my path for the foreseeable future. Um, This was the year 2008. um, And since then, I've been learning, reading and writing about Syriac language, um, culture and history. And for those of you who may not be familiar, Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic. Uh, It's still a living uh, language. It's used by various Christian communities in the Middle East and beyond, Um, and um, there is a particular expression of Christianity, or rather we can say a denomination of Christianity, multiple denominations actually, under the umbrella of Syriac Christianity. So I'm um, especially interested in the history and culture of um, those Christian communities. Um, So along the way, I picked up also other interests as one does. Um, For example, I became increasingly more interested in early Islam, the emergence of Islam in the um, early medieval Middle East, um, and the questions of studying Islam on part with Christianity and Judaism, right, as a scriptural religion. What does that mean? And what questions do we ask when we study Christian communities in the medieval Middle East under Islam? What does it mean by? Um, and so these questions um, were um, in my mind um, during my graduate um, studies. And on top of all of that, recently I started thinking increasingly more about the notion of global Christianity. That is a term that's been um, very, very um Trendy, um, recently, this Globalization of Religions, Global Christianity, and that's great. Um, it's wonderful to move the narrative of Christianity outside the history of Western Europe, um, outside the Eurocentric narrative, so I was very interested, and as a result, uh, I started working on the history of Middle Eastern Christians in America and elsewhere in, uh, in the West. So in a nutshell, as a result of my personal background and curiosities over the years, I can say I'm now dedicated to studying religion in the medieval Middle East and that history's role in the making of the modern world. So that's my background. Um, And... The question of what led me to write this book is um, really really a big one for me. It's um, in a way a culmination of multiple research questions that I have been interested in over the years. Um, For example, um, we talk about shared stories between different religious communities. What does it mean to share a story if we interpret the story differently, if we narrate it differently in different geographies and different languages? What does it mean to share a story? Um, and and especially for the medieval world, um, what does it mean for different Christian and Muslim communities to share stories? So that was one of them. Um, um, overarching questions of this project. And then what does it mean to study Islam as a new religion in the early medieval Middle East? Do we compare it to Judaism and Christianity? Do we um, take Islam in its own terms, something that has been suggested by many scholars? Um, how do we, how do, do we study this religion that became um imperial and very powerful and very culturally dominant in quite a short time in the medieval um, era. So how to do that? And then to what extent um, shared shared veneration of holy men and women um, between Christianity and Islam blur religious boundaries, right? When we step beyond the boundaries of stories and when we look at religious practice But can we still speak about uh, rigid communal religious confessional boundaries in the medieval Middle East? So, um, and, and other related questions, I'm not going to list all of the questions out here, but these were my starting um, questions at the beginning of this project, which was about 10 years ago now. Um, and when I started reading the scholarship about shared stories between Christianity and Islam, I noticed some patterns and dispositions in scholarship. And I had big question marks about them. For example, when we talk about shared stories between Christianity and Islam, we often talk about Jesus, Mary, John the Baptist, Abraham, and other biblical characters. But, of course, the divine past is a much more populous place. Um, And these figures are, of course, very important for Christians and Muslims alike. But there are many more holy men and women uh, venerated um, in antiquity, and their stories were told and retold. Um, So I started thinking about the ways we can capture that bigger picture beyond the biblical um, characters. And there are many um, works that analyze um, biblical and non-biblical characters whose stories were transmitted between Christianity and Islam. the bibliography in this topic is really vast. Um, I'm thinking of the works of Barbara Rokema, for, for example, or Elizabeth Key Fowden, Nancy Kaleck, um, Sarah Saban, and many others have analyzed important case studies. So I am joining this very lively conversation um, with my book. So the highlight of these studies for me was that there is no homogenous Islamic approach to Christian saints and sanctity. we, we tend to think of Christian holy men and women, their stories being Islamicized or Islamized. Um, but I wanted to reflect more on the diversity of Islamic engagement with Christian hagiography and saint veneration. So that was one of the um, starting directions for me to, to nuance a little bit um, the ways saint stories were transmitted and they were interpreted in Islam. Another issue that I had at the beginning of this project was that the more I read about transmission, the more I saw two inclinations in scholarship. So a group of scholars uh, argue, for example, that we can't really talk about stories shared between Christianity and Islam. We can't really trace that. What was happening on the ground was that there was a common pool of terms, expressions, and tropes, and different communities were drawing from that common pool. So that's the tropes argument. Things were circulating in the air, um, tropes were circulating in the air, and then Muslims and Christians and Jews and other communities were using those tropes. For example, A very pious king who fights and conquers in the name of God is a repeating trope across different cultures. Similarly, a female saint who transcends her gender and becomes genderless is again a repeating trope. Um, Or an extreme ascetic person who withdraws from society is another And scholars said, between Christianity and Islam, these tropes were shared merely and stories we don't really know. Another group um, wanted to, I think, aimed to, to trace the transmissions of stories, not only tropes, but stories from point A to point B. For example, um, a group of scholars um, demonstrated that um, the representation of Mary in the Quran might have been um, related to uh, some of the apocryphal Gospels. So they did that one-on-one literary comparison to find the source texts of Islamic stories. So this... Mere trope or story as a whole transferred from point A to point B, these two um, seemed a little um, too restrictive understanding of transmission for me. I um, demonstrated in my book that there are other ways we can think about these modes of transmission, not only trope or story, but there is more, and I can say more about that. Um, so the, so these were my curiosities and um my um, research questions beginning of the book that um, led to the research and um, the, yeah, the final product um, that, that I titled Stories Between Christianity and Islam. And I think the subtitle hopefully captures the content well, right, saints of memory and cultural exchange across a broad um, time frame.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for that wonderful background. So we have uh, really something to go on here. And you you started to talk about this idea of hagiography of of uh, of stories about saints. And in your your book, you critique or you find the term hagiography to be uh, uh, limiting, and you come up with a, a neologism, your own term. Could you tell us what the neologism is and what was wrong with the, the or limiting with the concept of hagiography?
1: Um, of course, that's uh, one of my favorite parts of the book. So the neologism is Um This is a, a made-up word. Um, and I I don't dislike hagiography. I think hagiography is a very uh, useful term. And it's actually a good way of explaining for me um, what I aim to do with the creation of this new word, hagiodiegesis So let's reflect on hagiography, right? What, what is it? Like, as uh, many of the listeners might know, um, it means um, writing about saintly people, Hagios like saintliness, saintly people, saintly things, and graphos is writing. Um, so texts about holy men and women, um, that is, um, so the, the term refers to that, like writings about holy men and women, their miracles, their um, life stories, and their accomplishments and pieties and all of that. Um, so in antiquity, um, writings about holy men and women were not entitled as hagiography. They were called a biography or history or just a story, and sometimes they were called acts. Um, But we still use the term hagiography since it's a very useful term, like it's a very useful tool for us to refer to that kind of discourse, um, talking or writing about um, writings about holy men and women. Because this form of writing was an important form of communication in late antiquity and the Middle Ages. Um, Authors of hagiographical texts set exemplars um, of piety and devotion. Um, They articulated on theological concepts. They communicated social norms, values and ideals. so writings about holy men and women were not merely biographies for preserving the memories of those holy men and women. They were teaching tools. So my reason um, to suggest the term like hagiographies is directly connected to this. Um, so back to back to linguistics, like hagiographies. Hagiographies is a narrative narration. So narrations about holy men and women in late antiquity and the Middle Ages were not just merely storytelling. Um, Although it was a form of storytelling, um, I suggest distinguishing it for the same reasons why we may choose to distinguish between biography and hagiography. So hagiodeegesis, in my understanding, refers to any narration in the absence of texts um, about holy men and women. This could take place in marketplaces or temples or in houses. Um, Imagine all of these different places where people told stories of prophets and saints and heroes to an audience um, with the aim of Morally forming that audience, or give a lesson, or um, or strengthen their piety, or or some other purpose, right? So um, I propose that that word to capture those narrations as something different than just a regular storytelling narration. Um, that was my that was my purpose. Um, and I hope um, I hope it, it, it is helpful. Um, because um, then we can use that as a as a useful tool, just like we use hagiography, we can use hagiodiagesis as a tool to um, talk about those lively narrations and how we imagine them, how the audience participates in those narrations. So I hope um, this word gives us a common language to talk about that very important practice in antiquity.
0: Right, so your work is really focusing um, on the the way that stories were told stories about saints were told in in antiquity and in um uh, uh, ancient times and, and, and into the, the Middle Ages, and then um, and, and the relationship between the people who were telling the story and the listeners of the stories. So could you tell us a little bit more about who were the narrators of these stories of saints during the time and in the uh, you know the, the region that you're looking at and who were the audiences for these stories?
1: Um, yeah, that's a really great question. And that was my, one of my starting um, questions for the first chapter of the book. Um, we know very little about who told the stories and who were listening um, because, you know, orality is very difficult to capture. Um, and we only have text the written versions. So we have to do a little bit of imaginative um, reconstruction here. And that's what I um, tried to do in the first chapter. When I read the text, for example, the text talk about uh, men and women, clerics and non-ordained people, and monks and nuns, old and young, um, all genders telling stories um, all the time. And it might... It might sound a little nihilistic here. Everybody was telling stories and it was a human, of course, it's a very human practice. So what do we gain by this reconstruction? That might be one of the critique. But but it's it's not that simple because the texts, again, tell us really interesting details about where the stories were told, um, under which circumstances, what? Um, whether the audience participation changed if the gender of the uh, storyteller was different than the audience's um um the majority's gender, so um it's really interesting and the texts say actually a lot about those um social and cultural um details about storytelling. Um and again, when we talk about Audiences, um, it depends on the context, right? For example, it could be one person. um, um, Just to give an example, um, from the Egyptian desert, uh, we have many um, episodes narrated where um, a pilgrim, um, either alone or with a small group, goes to uh, a holy man um, or woman um, in their cells, um, and they... Uh, ask a question, and the holy man or woman starts narrating a story. Um, And in that case, the storytelling session is very limited, um, is very intimate, um, and the audience is a small audience, and they ask questions and the holy man answers. So the narration session is actually divided and um, it is interrupted many times. So that is very different than, for example, a, an abbot narrating a story in a monastic setting where all the audience is monks and they seem to listen. Um, and it seems to be a more structured setting that way. Um, another you know, type of example that I really like is um, people who were healed um, at saints' shrines or through other miracles. Uh, they seem to have gone back to those shrines and narrated how they were healed and how the saint was able to help them and uh, so everyday lay people just become storytellers and in a way authority holders in those brief moments by just going back to the shrine and telling about their own life stories and healing stories. Um, Of course there's always the question whether we can take these literary representations as a reflection of real life events. Um, and I I do not propose that direct one-on-one translation, but um, I think if we read the text collectively and with a critical distance from them, we capture um, quite a lot about those storytelling um, contexts. And um, I tend to I think trust the texts a little bit and trust that they reflected, even in embellished forms, they reflected some um, parts of real life.
0: Right. And certainly if you have a text where, a, so to speak, an ordinary person is narrating this miraculous experience that happened to them, even if you imagine that the person who wrote the stories down was, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a, what we would consider a sort of intellectual or, you know, a literate person or whatever, you know, that was different from the, 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 you know, the the people who were in the stories, the mere fact that someone in that sort of higher status position wanted to write a story about an ordinary person and their miraculous experiences and their reflection on their miraculous experience tells us a lot about that culture and how they valued the, the daily experiences or miraculous experiences of ordinary people.
1: Absolutely. That is actually one of the major points. Even if the events that we read um, are not real events, they might be imagined, but in the end, these stories worked as guidelines for everyday practice. Um, so a person might have heard that story that way and then just just followed that example. So I think taking the texts, not necessarily one-on-one um, records of real life events, but sometimes as just guidelines for um, everyday practice um, is also a good way of approaching these texts.
0: Right. And um, so your, your, your book really focuses on the, the relationship between uh, Muslim storytelling or stories, uh, the storytelling among um, uh, Muslims and, and, the, 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 uh, and how it relates to storytelling practices of other religious communities uh, at that time in that area. Could you tell us a little bit more about the cultural milieu in which the Muslim saints' stories were developed?
1: Of course. So that's really an interesting question because um, although it is central to my book, it is a very fleeting development. Um, I don't know, for example, when or if we can point at a moment where Muslim hagiography started, um, so the the I think the cultural boundaries much more were much more porous, um, and that is why I one of the takeaways of the book is uh, to not divide that st- storytelling world um, into. Islamic stories and Christian stories and their differences. I think this was a much more fluid world of storytelling. Um, And um, when I say that, I'm referring to the world um, from roughly about 5th century through 8th, 9th century, that is called late antiquity. And in that milieu, we can talk about um, stories of saints just re-narrated across multiple confessions and many different languages in different geographies with different details. Um, So that world uh, was really rich before the coming of Islam. Um, Jews, uh, Christians, Manichaeans, pagans, Zoroastrians, um, you name it, um, they were telling really similar stories um, for the purposes of their own audiences and social contexts. And Islam joined that milieu um with of course its own teachings but really greatly intricately participating in that world of scriptural thinking and um hagiographical storytelling and um scriptural interpretation um setting down some um religious law and um and theological concepts so um Islam is a very interesting um, participant of um, that world starting from the 7th century. So um, how did Muslim hagiography develop? Um, It is partly by... by being nourished by that late antique milieu where all of these biblical and non-biblical stories of the divine past were circulating. And as far as we can tell from the Quran, um, Arabs in the Hijaz were very well familiar with these stories. But then um, the more Islam developed, Islam with a capital I, developed as a separate um, confession in the Middle East, um, then we different and new categories of sanctity. For example, Sufi saints and um, other uh, more Islamic saints. Um, if, we can, if we can make that distinction, let me just uh, put a scare code here. Um, so, um, Islam developed its own categories of sanctity um, and um, Islamic hagiography, we can say, took its own path. But it was always in conversation with Christian hagiography. That's one of the uh, major takeaways um, of my book Hopefully the readers will find, find um, there was never a cutting point between um, late antique or Judeo-Christian um, hagiography versus Islamic hagiography. They were always in conversation um, with each other, um, either um, complementing and co-creating each other or co-delegitimizing each other, but the conversation was ongoing.
0: Right. And speaking of Christianity, what role did long-distance pilgrimage and the household play in Christian storytelling?
1: That is one of the very interesting contexts where um, I really enjoyed... thinking about storytelling and transmission of knowledge. So we're talking about two different things, right? Long distance pilgrimage um, and the household. And we can almost think about these contexts as um, complementary, but very separate and very different um, um, social contexts in which stories circulated. So um, in my book, I showed uh, how long distance pilgrimage Catalyzed storytelling, and this is something many scholars um, said before me. So, um, in in that sense, uh, my contribution is to just um, give more examples um, to to that theory. Um, for example, we have a fourth century pilgrim Egeria, um very well known in um, uh, in the scholarship on early Christianity, who um, seems to have left Spain. Um, in the 4th century and travelled in the Egyptian desert in uh, in the Holy Land and then in Asia Minor um, she passed through Edessa, Haran and um, Antioch and other cities she went to Constantinople and then she um, returned we assume to, um, to Spain and um, she kept a diary uh, we of course don't There is a debate whether um, we can take the diary as a one-on-one record of everyday um, events that was happening during her pilgrimage or whether it was embellished in some ways that's up for debate but if we trust the the diary we read that everywhere she goes she asks about um, the stories of um, biblical figures or holy men and women who were living there and then either a local bishop or a monk uh, some tourist guide um, took her around and um, they told her stories and um, some of them she found very interesting some of them she um, wrote down and then some of them she Said this is very different than what I knew before. So she really engages and she asks questions um, and she accumulates all of this hagiographical knowledge as she travels the entire Eastern Mediterranean. So we can we can see how stories you know traveled with her and um, through her agency. And of course she was very privileged. She was um, not your everyday person who could afford such a long distance travel. So we have to think about the intersectionalities here, how class um, and economic background and gender um, and other other dynamics played into the transmission of knowledge uh, when it comes to thinking about uh, long-term pilgrimage. And just because we are on the topic of long term pilgrimage here, let's also just briefly mention short term or short distance uh, pilgrimage. Um, in many cases, we um, read about uh, villagers going to uh, the next mountain uh, to visit a holy man or woman and then they uh, narrate stories there or they hear stories there. Um, or um, they're going to the next village over to uh, celebrate a particular festival which wasn't taking place in their own village, but it was just in the next village. So those small um, or rather short distance travel also greatly catalyzed um, hagiographical transmission and um, circulation of stories. So that's the pilgrimage side. What happens in the household is really interesting um, because until this project, at least I thought about the household as a more or less a static place. Um, it is, of course, multi-generational. I like I was aware in theory that multi-generational uh, movement across um, um across the timeline of a household. But the more I um read the sources, um I I saw how a geographical knowledge was produced, circulated, preserved, um, and just transmitted within a household across generations. Um, we have, for example, um, a, a, a great corpus of scholarship focusing on Melania the Elder and Melania the Younger um, from um, from Rome. Um, this was a very aristocratic family, um, and both Melanias, um, one granddaughter and uh, one grand- grandmother. They were were both, uh, in the end, sanctified figures within their families and beyond. And um, we read in sources that they um, patronized hagiographical production. Um, They also connected their own family history to other saints that were imported to Rome. They founded monasteries um, in the Holy Land and elsewhere. So they uh, they became this sanctified family and they also um, um, circulated and, as I said, produced and um, transmitted our geographical knowledge. Um, and what happens is, like in, in the early Islam, most of those, fa- or it, not saying most, but many of those families, when they converted to Islam, they transmitted that. Um, geographical knowledge that they had to their new social context. Um, and with that knowledge, they seem to have cultivated some social authority and prestige for knowing biblical stories. Um, we know, for example, a a, a certain man, called um, Munabih um, in, in South Arabia, and three of his sons and a daughter, um, they were all transmitters of biblical knowledge. They are all remembered um, in a very respected way in Islamic tradition for um, being Jewish converts um, and for transmitting that knowledge into Islam. So, family all that is to say, the family and the household and that multi generational knowledge transmission. Um, it, it, it is really a very important context for our understanding of how stories were created, um, circulated,
0: and they were transmitted. Right, and you mentioned that that the. Um... Um, kind of in line with what you were just saying, that the, um, in a sense, the knowledge of the stories of saints became like a kind of cultural capital that people would use in order to establish or reestablish their own social standing in the community um, because they had this knowledge and that sort of put them maybe above some of the other people in the community
1: absolutely um that's absolutely how it worked um especially in early Islam for the first two uh, centuries um seventh 8th through nine like early ninth century um we um read about many figures many characters in Islamic history who were um held in great respect for just knowing their stories. Um, especially, of course, when um, these texts talk about stories, they talk about biblical stories or stories of the divine past. And um, I just mentioned um, Munabbi's family, wahab bin Munabbi, for example, a, a Yemeni scholar um, in the early um, 8th century. Um, he was known and really held in great respect um, in Islamic circles for Um, just knowing um, many uh, stories of the divine past. What is really interesting is that Although early Islamic milieu was um, praising um, these um, storytellers and their knowledge, later on those stories and those transmitters were sidelined in some ways. Um, Although they were very high prestige individuals in that um, early times, later on as um, Islam developed its own um, categories of sanctity and theological notions, some of those earlier Storytellers um, were just deemed untrustworthy, or they were deemed deemed a little too Jewish or a little too Christian. So they were sidelined. Um, they were sidelined as just mere storytellers. Um, so it's very interesting how the Islamic tradition sorted its own history and um, created categories like Israeliyat stories about Jewish and Christian past. Uh, versus other categories like Hadith, which were held in higher respect in terms of its theological value, while Israeliyat, these earlier stories transmitted from the Jewish and Christian milieu, were interpreted or read. Merely as stories and not very theologically reliable stories so that later categorization is really very interesting
0: Wow, that's really fascinating uh, speaking, I, I, I can't help myself, there's one thing that um, I uh, that really caught my eye uh, when I was reading your book um, and it talks about um, uh, let's see if I can find uh, how I worded the question um, um but basically, um, this idea that that that, um, that Islamic stories they sometimes had characters who predated Muhammad, but. At the same time, the Islamic stories sort of reinterpreted those figures to make them Muslim, even though sort of technically Islam didn't exist yet as a, you know, a religion. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because to me, that's just such a fascinating uh, kind of metamorphosis of older, um, you know, re- um, religious uh, uh, materials.
1: Right, that's really a, an interesting um, phenomenon that happens in literature um, very often. Of course, we know that from um, um, Christian literature as well, right? For example, Greek um, philosophers and um, sometimes even Greek gods and goddesses um, were, um, were reinterpreted in um, Christian literature as um, either monotheists or proto-monotheists. They were theologically more acceptable in some way. So that kind of um, retrospective appropriation of the past is very common across different religious communities, so that wasn't an Islamic um, creation. Um, but what it's still what Islam did, or or Muslim authors uh, did with uh, that pre-Islamic past, is very interesting. Many uh, Christian saints, as well as of course Jewish figures, um, and um, even figures from uh, again the Greco-Roman, um, you know, so-called pagan past, they were all Islamized. Um, it's at least in some literature this doesn't happen in all um cases of transmission um but in some cases especially when the author aims to show um the the universality of islam um and the um and the eternal nature of islamic community from day one from the creation until um until today so when the author wanted to emphasize that eternal uh, muslim community they uh, seem to have um represented um, christian and other uh saints as muslims um this is theologically of course very acceptable um and there are different um strategies of doing this um some authors straight up call them muslims um while some authors uh call them imams of their communities um so in in one way or another um, they were Islamicized um, again this depends on the author's aim um, in some literature um, the author wanted to do something else um, for example they wanted to um, show the universality of um, Islamic asceticism or they just wanted to narrate history and just they just wanted to give historical facts um, in those cases those kinds of Islamizations do not happen um, but in some cases, um, definitely um, that language is used, really interesting language is used to um, to Islamicize the saints. Um, another very interesting strategy is to represent them and um, um, as if they were um, um they were uh, prostrating um, um, um and and uh, and um, doing other um religious ritual um the way um medieval muslim communities do so they are uh, doing two rakas for example um doing um, um the raqa or salat um so these are all islamic terms for uh, referring to um islamic ritual prayer um and um pre muhammad saying are represented as practicing these um, Islamic rituals. So um, there were multiple literary strategies to uh, represent uh, pre-Islamic saints as uh, Muslims.
0: Right. Right. I'm curious, what could be said about Muhammad's storytelling within the early Muslim community?
1: Um, That's a very... um, Yeah, very good question, and one of the questions that I enjoyed thinking and writing um, about a lot, Um, because this is methodologically, of course, a a, a, a big question, like, how do we know what Muhammad said or did in the early Islamic community, or in his community, even if we cannot call that an Islamic community yet? we have um, a text uh, from dating from around that time, the Quran, um, and and I belong to the scholarly faction that um, argues that the Quran uh, captures a part of Muhammad's preaching in late antique. Arabia. Uh, It's, of course, very embellished. It was um, modified and altered in some ways um, in the codification process, in the process of it becoming a book. So we cannot take it, we cannot assume that everything that is in the Quran right now um, was uttered by Muhammad um, word by word. We cannot assume that. But we can still assume that um, in one form or another, um, this book captures a part of Muhammad's preaching. So in that preaching, um, in the Quran, we see many stories. And um, we see many comments about storytelling too. In, uh, I think, about seven verses, um, the Quranic verses say, they call you a storyteller. You're not just a storyteller. right? They say to you that um, you are just telling the um, the fables of those ancient days, um, you are not just doing that. So this tells you that people in Muhammad's community many times were just saying to him, you're just telling us stories. You're not a prophet. You're just telling us stories. So it tells you, it gives us a glimpse of that audience engagement with his preaching. And um, still, Muhammad, of course, kept um, narrating stories for um, different purposes, and that's another question. But if we take Quranic, if we look at Quranic um, stories, they are really interesting. Some of them sound um, like other stories we know from uh, the Christian media. Um, for example, in Surah Tal um 18th chapter of the Quran, we have uh, a, a re-narration of the story of the seven sleepers of Ephesus. Um, it's quite recognizable. Um, and we can, of course, decide what to do with that. And, um, you know, we can, we can theorize about um, why Muhammad was uh, telling that story. But it is quite clear that he knew that story and he told that story to his audiences. And there are other examples as well. C-
0: could you tell us a little bit more about what, what, for listeners who are not familiar, what is the stories that are in Surah 18? And, uh, you yeah, know, let's, let's start with that. Of
1: course. Um, So, um, Surah 18 is uh, called The Chapter of the Cave, um, and it has, um, it's a matter of debate, but it has four or five very short stories. It starts with the story of uh, what is known as the story of the seven sleepers of Ephesus. Um, this is about um, a group of young people who miraculously fell asleep during a persecution, uh, and then they they woke up and they are venerated as these um, as 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 a group of saints. It's a very famous story that was narrated by um, Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike. very uh, one of those universal stories. Um, So the chapter opens with that story. Um. Then, uh, then comes um a story of two um two men, a rich man and a poor man, and their fates are interchanged. Um, um, the rich man takes the the his wealth for granted, but then um his whole wealth is destroyed, and he laments, um, he laments um that destruction while the poor man was warning him. Um, and anyway, so it is that um interesting exchange between. These two men, whose fates completely um, are reversed, then um, 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 comes a story in which um, um, Moses, Prophet Moses, is um, is instructed by an unnamed. Um, holy man or a hero, he's quite difficult to capture. Um, But uh, Moses travels with this um, interesting character and he learns different lessons about um, very counterintuitive events. Um, And immediately after that, um, a story about a a very mighty warrior um, comes and that story is interpreted in medieval and modern scholarship as a, a story of Alexander the Great. Uh, So the division between these four stories um, um, is debated in scholarship, but these are quite interesting um, stories with um, close parallels in non-Islamic literature. Um, So I um, allocated a chapter um, to these stories and their later Islamic interpretations. And if I can just say a little bit more on these later interpretations, it's very interesting because... The Quran itself, for example, doesn't name the, the youths who fell asleep in a cave. Um, the Quran just says they are just believers, they, they fell asleep. You would think they were dead, but they weren't dead. So the Quran just alludes to that story. Um, the, the Quranic uh, voice um, just assumes that the audience knows the story because he says, remember how they were in that cave. But then um, later on, um, Muslim um, exegetes um, and interpreters um, gave us lists of names of those youths, and when we look at those lists uh, and compare them to lists of names, uh, lists of names in Syriac literature, for example, they're very close. So. Clearly, Muslim historians were familiar with um, Christian hagiography, and they turned to Christian hagiography to interpret the Quran. Um, so, those um, additional details are really interesting um, for me to show the ongoing conversation between Christians and, and and Muslims.
0: Right. So, it's not only that Christians and Muslims were in, you know, dialogue or whatever in ancient times, but that this type of conversation, this type of cultural exchange and, and you know, interactions or whatever continued even in medieval times uh, where, com- you know, communities, uh, members of one community are borrowing and being inspired by reflecting on what's going on in the other community
1: right absolutely and i sometimes um i mean i many times of course um phrase it that way um this ongoing you know conversation and dialogue sometimes it sounds a little too vague to me like what does it mean for communities to be in constant dialogue like of course people were in constant encounter and interaction so it's some myself like i sound a little too wishy-washy to myself sometimes um but um that chapter and a few other cases that i cover in the book actually show us what that ongoing dialogue means, because some um, um, Muslim authors, um, for example, give us different accounts that they um, they heard from different Christian communities. Um, the um, the Wahab bin Munapi, whom I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, um, he says in a report, for example, that Jacobite Christians They they were this many. um, There were this many youths fell asleep in um, in the cave, and then the Nestorian Christians say this, and then the other Christian community says that. So he seems to have um, have. Interacted with different Christian communities, and he recognizes the differences between those communities. So that, to me, is a solid example um, of how that ongoing conversation um, took place and how it was represented in Islamic literature. Um, this is all again. I want to put another footnote here. This is all a methodological choice to um, um, to um, read our uh, sources with some critical distance, um, we, we, we would always have to acknowledge the fact that these might be just imagined episodes, imagined events, but even be, even beyond that, um, if there are enough, there's enough number of um, examples of such sort, um, I advocate for, or I, I prefer um, to take them a little serious about um, um, carrying a kernel of
0: truth. Right. And speaking of stories, could you tell us a little bit about the 5th century Syriac story of Paul of Kentos and John of Edessa?
1: That's one of my favorite stories. Um, it is not a very well-known story in the Christian tradition. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, it's a Syriac story um, written sometime in the 5th century. Um, And it was translated to Greek and um, the manuscripts um, um, repeat the story across the Middle Ages. So it was repeated quite a while, but it's not one of those most famous stories that people remember when we say Christian hagiography, for example, the life of Anthony of Egypt or Simeon the Stylite. These are much more celebrities, uh, celebrity holy men, Um, but Paul and John did not gain that Kind of a status for, for you know whatever reason. What is very interesting is that this story, um, in a very shortened and very condensed form, um, appears in an early biography of Muhammad. Um, and uh, it's what, what is very interesting is that the parts, um, the the biography. Um, Includes the parts of the story is um, actually very very lively. Like one story about a holy man uh, that w- who was um, dwelling in a tree, and um, Paul and John uh, accompany this old man a little bit, and then then um, this um, tree dwelling saint dies. They bury him. This is a not a, not a theological uh, theologically important story, uh, depending on the interpretation, of course. But it's a very inter- entertaining, very lighthearted story. There are no uh, big biblical quotations around this story um, in the Syriac version. Uh, So it's very interesting why um, the transmitters um, repeated this part of the story. Uh, And another interesting episode in that Syriac story is how the episode where um, Paul and John goes to South Arabia and uh, they um, see this pagans, tree-worshiping pagans, um, and uh, they uproot the tree and they evangelize the community. It's a very dramatic uh, episode. and that one is also repeated in the version in um, in the biography of Muhammad. Um, so this is a very interesting case where a um, story is shortened and reinterpreted and repackaged uh, in the Islamic tradition, uh, and it found its way to one of the most important texts in Islam, the biography of Muhammad, the classics of Islam, right? Right. Um, Islamic literature, so um, it's very interesting why and how the story made it, and I, I have some theories about it in that in that chapter. Um, and even more interesting than that particular transmission is that the the arabic version of the story actually keeps um appearing in islamic literature in different genres um in in Sufi literature in historiography um in um in a couple other places uh, so the story was very popular in islamic literature although it wasn't that popular in christian literature so it, it, it had a completely different value and um, and power um in islamic literature which is again very interesting to me
0: yeah could you say a little bit about how that story is reinterpreted so how you could sort of see the difference so to speak between the Christian version of the story and then the distinctly you know Islamic version of the story
1: so um, the interpretation of the story is um, another interesting question because in in the Christian version um, this is a very um, regular hagiographical text um, to holy men they leave their uh, clerical titles one of them was a bishop the other one was a priest they leave that clerical world and they start traveling in the holy land and they go to Saudi Arabia in Syria and um, they uh, perform these miracles um, and uh, they evangelize communities uh, they give these dramatic um, speeches in, throughout their travels and then they end up in northern Mesopotamia and they separate at some point and at the end um, we um, are told that um, they were buried in different places. Um, So this is a very conventional Syriac hagiographical narrative structure. So, um, it, it, the, how it was interpreted in Christian uh, literature is, um, is a more straightforward question because we have more, um, biblical quotations in the text, and um, it was uh, produced in edessa. So that context tells us about, um, the 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 purpose for which um, this particular story um, was composed. Um, so that part is quite straightforward. Um, When it comes to Islam and the story's interpretation in Islamic literature, we are looking at multiple aims um, or multiple functions this story fulfilled. In the biography of Muhammad, um, it is is placed um, among the events that um, foretold the coming of Muhammad. Um, so when we look at the story right before this story and right after the story, there is a narrative succession here um, that, that culminates with um, Muhammad's um, prophecy. Um, so in that context, it became one of those stories that um, told about this Pre Muhammadan monotheism, pre Muhammad Islam. And it is there um, where um, um, these holy men were called imams of their communities, um, a materialist strategy we talked about um, a couple of minutes ago. Um, but when we look at this story in other genres, um, it, it is actually interpreted differently. For example, um, in, a, um, in an um, ascetic treatise, um, it was used as an example of um, a universal form of asceticism. Paul and John are put among um, other Muslim and Christian and, um, and Jewish saints and sages. Um, the author wanted to portray a, a universal picture for asceticism that included Christians, um, Jews, and Muslims um, 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 equally. Um, and in that context, Paul and John, um, renamed as Fimun and Salih in um, in the Arabic tradition, they're not Islamized. Um, they stay as Christians. Um, in in historiographical works, in al-Tabari's um, um, 10th century, um, global history um, or universal history uh, the story appears again and there too uh, it appears like a historiographical um, story a, a story about what happened in pre Muhammad um, um, world um, so depending on the author the genre and the particular text uh, the interpretation of the story changed in some of them Paul and John become Muslims and in some others they stay as Christians and the author emphasizes that they are Christian, um, depending on the um, aim of the author.
0: Right. Wow. There was so much more to talk about, but we are going to run out of time. So let me ask you as a final question, what do you hope readers take away from your book?
1: Uh, That's a great question because uh, anytime I um, I hold such a... um, Dance book, I, I, I have you know, one has to decide what to do with what with the book. Um, so I hope, um, the reader leaves the book with one of the four takeaways that I, um, aimed here. Um, the first takeaway is is that categories like biblical and non-biblical literature prophet versus saint, um, biblical or apocryphal story. So such dichotomic understanding of literature and stories did not apply to antiquity. So um, the first takeaway of the book is to question those categories, stories of the divine past, um, were read and interpreted in so many ways that biblical and non-biblical were not categories for many of these authors that i um, that i um, analyzed the other takeaway um, is another dichotomy that i wanted to argue against is that simple believer and more sophisticated believer. That dichotomy is very um, common in my field, um, in religious studies in general. Um, Simple believers are described as those people who are not really interested in theology, they just do religion for uh, multiple reasons in quite simple ways. Um, And then there is the theologically knowledgeable, theologically literate believer, um, like clerics, monks um, philosophers they are taken as um, these big thinkers and more sophisticated believers and the book shows that between the simple believer and the theologically knowledgeable believer there is the there's another category um, believers who knew their stories very well they weren't simple I mean they might be simple because they might be illiterate for example but they knew their stories well. They um, were sought after for their interpretations of stories. So um, this this complicates our simple versus um, not not simple um, believer dichotomy. So that's the other takeaway. Um, and um, another takeaway, um, and I'm going to stop there. But a third takeaway is um, to um, is to highlight that. Christian-Muslim geographical transmission or encounter and exchange were not just one-time and one-place interactions. We might we might trace stories back to particular manuscripts and particular contexts, but I hope the chapters show the readers that those conversations happened um, on a continuum. They were ongoing. It wasn't just from point A to point B but those interactions continued um, and renegotiated, memories were created and erased. So there was a much more dynamic uh, conversation going on and that um, transmission from point A to point B generally does not capture that kind of dynamism. So those would be um, the the takeaways I hope the readers will find in this
0: book. Terrific, well, uh, thank you uh, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun uh, speaking um, to you today and I hope the um, listeners will also find it useful and fun.
0: I hope so too. Uh, That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.